The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Talking to Nigel Giles, who's the uh, the author of a book uh, on number ninety six, uh, Australian TV's most notorious address, is uh, the subtitle of the of the book. And number ninety six was, I mean, actually, uh, an extraordinary milestone in Australian television. So maybe uh, Nigel, a lot of our listeners won't necessarily be that familiar with the show. Could you give give us a, like a little paragraph pricey of of what it, what it meant? Sure. Uh, number 96 was set in an apartment block in Sydney. It was it debuted in March 1972, so that was 45 years ago. And it uh, was about the lives of the residents of the apartment block. There were uh, two uh, shops at the base of the apartment block It's uh, and uh, six flats above <clears throat> it's screened on the o10 network as it was back then in the adult only time slot of uh, 8 30 till 9 p.m monday to friday and it was it was very racy and it was it, there was, so there was i mean i there were a few the first few episodes are available on youtube and uh i have a weird memory that i actually was not allowed to watch a lot, of, a lot of people. Oh, big, the whole channel. The whole channel. Yeah. My <laughs> my father had a conspiracy theory about Reg Ansett and his and the lies that he told to get a television license. So yeah, I never I never watched it at the time, but I was probably a little young, but maybe not. But um, it was certainly uh, you know the playground was alive with discussion of things that went on on that show, that in the box. Yes, exactly. So um, one of the things that really interests me about number ninety six is is the location. So it's it's in Paddington. It's in Moncur Street. Is that in the show, it's set in Paddington. In reality, that block of flats is in uh, Wallara, which is right next door to Paddington. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and Moncur Street, Wallara is. I think it's number eighty. If anyone wants to go and check it out, as people do, they still do. They do, yeah. There's a, a Facebook uh, page, and people occasionally post pictures of themselves having made the pilgrimage to the block of flats. I love the I love the kind of the settings of soap operas where they they maximise they find a location that maximises the amount of interaction that people can have, and this this has everything because it has the shops. So people people from can come in off the street to do things, and then one of the shops became a bar, right? That's so, right. Yeah. So there was yeah. even more reason for strangers to wander through, but then there's also the the various people in the various flats who they're sort of wandering in and out of each other's apartments all the time. So there's there's a, just an amazing amount of interaction and, and possible combinations, and very little uh, beyond that core of say 16 to 18 characters so I mean they would introduce other uh, characters but I've often wondered particularly when writing the book you know uh, where were so-and-so's parents or siblings and and often they they weren't written in at all so the block of flats was the hub and pretty much everything happened in that community 
in the in that setting of the block of flats with the bar downstairs and, and a deli on the other side. Mm. There was a little bit of you know, there's some stuff shot outside, but that wasn't very common, right? It was almost always particularly. Studio. That's right. In the early days, they rarely did location shoots. It was all pretty much uh, studio based. Uh, in 1976, they cut back from five half hours a week to two one-hour episodes a week, and just cutting back on the shooting time actually gave them a bit more time to go and do location work. So occasionally they'd film outside, say the block of flats or or wherever, but uh, pretty much for the first uh, three years or so, it was all pretty much studio work and uh, as I said when they cut back to two hours a week uh, that allowed them then they went to Luna Park uh, in one episode they would go to to uh, the beach or, or just uh, anywhere to, to uh, one of the directors in the book says anywhere to get away from those same three walls because part of the thing I suppose this is another element of the advantage of setting a show in a in a block of flats is that they could use they basically had the same sets and they could just change aspects of the you know the furnishings or whatever and that's, that's right. someone else's apartment that's right exactly how they they had two uh, permanent sets one was the deli one was the wine bar and then they had two uh, apartments and they would just change those they dressed them to be uh, different characters the mm. and and change the numbers on the doors Mm. And one flight of stairs, I think it was, where in the show it would have been three flights of stairs. Right? All the tricks of uh, television. Which is just, <laughs> I mean, it's great. And I, um, just thinking of that, I love that uh, also on YouTube you get the very last, I, I think it's, you know, if, whether it's actually part of the very last show or it's a coda to the last show, but where you get an elevated view of the um, the, the studio with all the... The various That's um, right. components. Yeah, yeah, as the lights are mm. going out. Yeah. One of the things that really interests me about number 96, and I, I, I'm sure you'll have something interesting to say about this, um, I came across uh, an article in the Bulletin in the 1960s that talked about Paddington as being the part of Sydney that the, that the rest of Sydney sort of, you know, twitched their curtains out. They were really excited about the idea of Bohemian Paddington and what went on there. Is there much of that kind of bohemian element or the kind of um just just general excitement about how people might live in a in a in a building like number 96 uh, at the time there was david sale who created number 96 and uh wrote for it for most of its five and a half year run he uh, deliberately introduced characters that he would see around that area and you know, it was the seventies, so there were hippies and uh, bikies. Yeah. Bikies yeah. featured a lot, yes, uh, and things they got up to, so drugs and and both things like marijuana and uh, heroin later on in the storyline. David just tried to make it as cosmopolitan and and up to date at that time uh, as he could. There were. Uh, gay characters in there which that was the first for television um who else was there just uh people talk about the sort of melting pot of number 96 in terms of uh characters and diversity so you know there were uh 
Jewish people there, there were indigenous people, there were African Americans, uh, Italians, a bit of everything, really. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, a pommy, uh, 10 pound poms. Yes, yeah, so you had, I mean, the the, the Godolphuses on the ground floor, which was, uh, you know, r- running the, the delicatessen, but living in the building as well, living yes. out the back. Yeah, but yeah. there was a uh, one bedroom flat behind the deli. Yeah. Although at one stage, Aldo, played by Johnny Lockwood, who ran the deli, lived there with his daughter, so she'd sleep in the lounge room on a fold-out <laughs> fold out couch. Okay. Right. Yeah. It's a bit cramped. <laughs> but the Indigenous... I, did, I hadn't realised until I read your book that the um, uh, that there was an Indigenous indigenous actor in there who uh, made the cover of TV Week and so on. What, what, was the, what were the storylines around her? Well, again, David Sale says she wasn't introduced as a, a token Aboriginal character. She was introduced as a hairdresser who happened to be Aboriginal. Uh, so she worked in the hair salon. Uh, she had a romance uh, with some of the other, well, I think just uh, Arnold Feather, who was one of the main characters. Uh, she was involved in a, a major storyline where there was a rapist going around uh, attacking the residents. Again, that was the 70s. <clears throat> um, and we're talking about Justine Saunders, who had done a little bit of television work before number 96, but that was her first uh, ongoing role and probably her, her most major role at that point. And she went on to have an amazing uh, award-winning career. So uh, that was really groundbreaking stuff. And number 96 never shied away from introducing things that weren't seen on other shows or or, uh, on uh, television in general. So that was definitely one of the... Is that the kind of the freedom that, that comes with, you know, they, I guess they, they have the, the sexy stuff that... that makes gives makes them into a blockbuster and then they can do some other did they see themselves as as innovators necessarily what what how did those guys see themselves they knew they were pushing boundaries pretty much because uh people complained a lot well certain groups uh, complained a lot about the nudity and and there were actually executives at channel 10 who were very homophobic and ted jobbins who worked on the show talks about one uh, executive being so homophobic that he hated the idea of gay characters being in the show Uh, when the show debuted channel the o10 network were it was really make or break time for them so they sort of had nothing to lose they thought let's push the boundaries uh, and have all this adult content and i think once that uh, sort of settled down once the show had been going for, for a little while they started introducing social issues I mean they already had the gay characters but they started introducing uh, storylines dealing with breast cancer alcoholism uh, the drugs as we mentioned before all this sort of thing and I it was sort of a, a two things it was them wanting to push boundaries and uh, introduce things that hadn't been seen before 
But at the same time, the more people complained about what was being depicted on the screens, whether it was, you know, bare breasts or or a sex scene, and sex scenes were very tame mm. uh, by today's standards. Uh, the more people complained, the more they said, "All right, let's uh, get the wowsers uh, in more of a frenzy," and 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 so they would put things deliberately in the storylines to sort of mock the, the, the people who were complaining. Uh, so they had um, the issues, as, as I mentioned, breast cancer, etc. Uh, but the more shocking thing, so they, they might uh, have a, a, you know, a woman jumping out of bed or out of the shower without her clothes on, and they would stick that in just to mm. stick it up there the people who complain who are obviously watching so exactly you know, one of the things that um i really love about uh, pre vcr television is you could do all, i'm assuming you could do all kinds of things and pe- because it was all it was so ephemeral like you know you could um and uh, i mean the same is true of live television that it's just like people go well did that did that really happen you know did i see that it's it's so much more like um, seeing something on stage or, or something in the street and not really, um, you don't have the reference copy. You can't go back and go, well, what was that? That's a very good point. It's, um, but it was interesting looking at the first episode of um, number 96, which is uh, on, on YouTube, and there is a cut, which I think you mentioned in the book was, um, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of a hand going too far up the That's leg. Scary, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so there's a, an obvious jump, which... I, mean, I do remember enough about television in the 70s to remember that, that it wasn't unique to see that in films and so on, to see bits cut out or That's you know, right. bits overdubbed. Yeah. Was, uh, so so there, were, there were occasional cuts made, but still they could clearly get away with a lot more. Well, I think they could get away with a lot more. They, they could, but they also they got a bit... Uh, they had to be a bit sneaky about some things. And this is more to do with words. People found things like saying get stuffed right. offensive and the, the censorship board actually sent the censorship board was based in Melbourne a, a bloke from Melbourne from the board would go up to Sydney each week for a, at one period and watch every episode and uh, make sure things like get stuffed or, yeah. or arse you weren't allowed to say oh, these yeah. uh, these words <laughs> He'd make sure uh, they weren't uh, being filmed. But what they would do, Tom Greer, who was the publicist, would just arrange for the tea lady to turn up with her tea trolley when there was something that they wanted to get around. Um, and, and they would distract this guy. Hmm. Also, the more he watched the show, the more he got into it and... and I guess just let things go through. He started to realise the relevance. Yeah, Uh, yeah. and it wasn't so bad after all. I mean, I think it was a very small section of the community who were complaining, but they were loud. Yes, yeah. yeah. And it was Fred Nile and and the church groups and...
one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and you mentioned this uh, as well in the book, is uh, the, the degree to which the public identified with characters on the show that they didn't know the difference between actor and you know and, and character. And um, it, it must have been extraordinary for a lot of those people that the, the phenomenon of uh, the huge success of those characters and the... You know, what, what does that say about... I don't know if that still happens. What, what do you think... What would that say about people in the 70s that, um, that they would have that kind of confusion? I think it, the thing with the 70s is, you know, there'd been Bell Bird mm. uh, four nights a week for 15-minute episodes and number 96 came along and it was five nights a week. People just became so familiar with those characters. And often if... If the show is written, or when the show is written about in the press, there might be a, a headline using the character's name. So the whole uh, myth, or, or whatever it is, of these characters was just perpetuated. And uh, nearly every actor I spoke to, if I asked them what did the fans call you, it was always by the, the character name. Now, Tom Oliver who some people might know from Neighbours. He's low in Neighbours, yeah. That's right. Uh, he, he was uh, doing Neighbours for 20-something years. He was in number 96, and he said nothing's changed. Back then when he was doing number 96, people would call him Jack. His, mm. his character was Jack Sellers. And in Neighbours, it would always be, G'day, Lou. So, I don't know. I think people either don't bother to find out the actor's real name or, or in an ensemble cast there are too many names unless it's someone who's been in the show although I was going to say for, unless someone's been in the show for a long time but uh, Tom Oliver was in Neighbours yeah, for a, a long, long time, time. Yeah. so I think uh, his comment actually surprised me because I thought uh, it would be different but no a lot of uh, fans just think of the the actor as the character. I guess unless the the character looks completely different, perhaps uh, that might mm. bring some awareness. But generally, the uh, I don't know. It's just laziness or ease yeah. Or, yeah. or what. It's a, it's an interesting. Uh, so the familiarity is that that is actually really it's like it's someone well. You know, you're in my living room four nights a week, so yeah. you know you're. I see more of you than I do my own family. Kind of thing would would probably be the the way that people feel about it. But I I do wonder about the um, the willingness to. They must. They obviously people. I'm not going to say people aren't stupid because many people are stupid. But <laughs> um, the the willingness of of people to just kind of suspend that um, and uh, not think beyond. Yeah. Which is the same. Oddly enough, um, just a few hours ago, I was um, having a coffee with uh, someone who I, sh I said I was coming. I was going to talk to you and showed him this book, and he said I I had a um, I went out with a woman who lived in in this building in the early eighties, uh, and we talked a little bit about how you know how people regarded the building and so on, and and you know so there are pilgrimages. People do go, yes. and still to this day, yeah. it must have been extraordinary when the show was actually on. I mean, people would have been 
you know, crashing their cars in the street when they would, went, wait a minute, that's... Indeed, yeah. Because it's, it's, it's totally imprinted. The, the, the closing credits are, you know, going from flat to flat on the exterior of the building and um, surely people must have been, like, going, trying to get in. Well, they reckon there were even uh, tourist buses taking people there at at one point. And I'm sure, I mean, there's no, uh, the real shops, I think, were a real estate agent and a a doctor's surgery. So once they got there and saw there was no delicatessen or or wine bar, I don't know what they thought. Let's go in and knock on flat three and see if Dory Evans is home, something like that. Or just to visit the building because they love the show so much. Not everyone would have been under the impression that those characters really lived in that block of flats, but, you know, a lot of people did, or they just went along with it because they loved the show so much. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I actually, when I first uh, was working on the book, I wanted to find someone who lived in the block of flats at the time, uh, but that... Uh, it didn't work out, but it'd be very interesting to mm-hmm. to find out. Yeah, it must it must surely have been a thing. It's um, it's it's part of that, um, and it's also part of the what we were saying before the excitement of like Bohemian in inverted commas Paddington. You know the yeah. kind of you know what kind of lives would be led in there anyway, even if it wasn't the um, the actual life of. Um, Dory Evans. Yeah. Yeah. Abigail, one of the actors, uh, says, you know, number 96 gave viewers a chance to peek through their own keyholes, and, and I think that's a very that's apt. A, that's a great quote. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, oh, by the way, also, I, I, I mean, it's legend, there must be a, um, if not at least tens, if not hundreds of thousands of uh, pictures of people. Uh, of people who've taken had photos taken of themselves in Pinnock Court, you know, yes, the, the exactly. neighbours' street. My so it's you know that's a pilgrimage as well. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So, yeah. Um, so it's that's still a phenomenon as well. So place is really um, important in that sense. I think it's um, it's it's a it's a really interesting um, world though that that seventies um, world of. I mean, I really do think it's like. D- tell us a little bit about about the. Um, the attempts to to sell the concept in other countries because there was at least were there two versions of number ninety six internationally or only one? Uh, there was well, they tried to sell the series overseas. Once people, I mean, this, number ninety six was written about in Time magazine. Uh, you know, people uh, in England and America knew about this show, but. The content was far too racy for for the times uh, for those countries, so they couldn't buy buy the show. But it did screen in Canada, and it's also screened in uh, Italy uh, later on in the in the run. And I don't know how successful the, those uh, screenings were. I, I I don't think they were major networks that were screening the show, but it. Uh, from what I gather, it did have a screening in both Canada and Italy. Now, because the Americans couldn't screen our original series, they, in, I think, 1980, 81, 
came up with their own version. So it was called Number 96. It was set in Los Angeles. It was in an apartment block, an ensemble cast, but none of the characters, and I think it lasted about three episodes. And again, uh, I actually saw a promo of it the other day, and it sounds as if it's going to be sexy, but I don't think they could show half the stuff that, that we were showing here. Um, I don't think they had the gay characters. There was, uh, I'm pretty sure there was no interracial relationships in this American version. So, as I said, I think it was about three episodes in it, and it was and axed. It died. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's... Um, so that... But, and they, they don't exist anymore, those episodes, or you haven't been able to see yeah, them? Uh, I think the American episodes probably do still exist. Mm. I've only ever seen snippets uh, on YouTube and, and yeah. whatever. Yeah. It's a shame number 96 didn't, our version of it didn't screen uh, elsewhere that we could get copies of those uh, black and white oh, episodes. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. You know. Um, well, Australia was probably the last Western country to still be broadcasting black and white in '73. Yeah. Well, uh, I think South Africa didn't even have television until '76 or something. So, <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting, and you know, the, a lot of the black and white episodes don't exist. Those, I think, there's something like sixteen or, or so of the very early episodes. Um, and then something like 500 black and white episodes have just been Gone. destroyed, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. which is a real shame, you know, because that's uh, a lot of the really groundbreaking stuff was done in, in those first two, two or three mm. years. So it's interesting, the gay characters, and that's obviously um, that's a notable element of the show that was, um, yeah, that was really extraordinary for the time and Absolutely. this is a time when I guess homosexuality is still illegal yes. in most if all states maybe I think it maybe was. South Australia might have South Australia around that time but maybe a little later so um did do you get the sense looking at the having examined the show that there's that it contributed to any kind of change of attitude definitely uh, I, and Dennis Oldman, for instance, has said that number 96 was a huge thing for gay lib in this country. Uh, and just the uh, anecdotal tales of uh, young gay men. Well, I did a, a radio interview a couple of weeks ago in uh, Perth, and someone, a, a guy rang up, uh, he'd be in his 50s or 60s now, and he said, growing up as a gay kid, that show pretty much saved my life because it uh, let me see that, no, I'm not alone, I'm not a freak, that uh, gay men can thrive and, and be loved and, and form relationships mm. and, and uh, be a, a valuable member of society. And there's no... Uh, there's, there was no a special stigma... No. Um, so there's uh, there's never any introduction of some kind of, you know, busybody character tut-tutting or anything like that. It's just something that happens. So in a way it's um, 
probably fairly far removed from, from the reality of the early 70s. But nevertheless, I guess that's part of the bohemian, you know, inverted commas, Paddington, you know, the bohemian utopia of Paddington in, yeah, at that time. Yeah, I think so. It's, uh, you know, I mean, once again, they could have gay characters in the show, but you couldn't see them in bed, not yeah. on, not on in the television series. That came in mm. the film. The film, version. yeah. Yeah, 996, the movie. Um, so they were, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, they were pushing boundaries, but they, I mean, who knows what would have happened if they did show two men in bed. The mm. censorship board probably would have cut the, mm. the scene out, I, I guess. Um, I think as the series went on down the track, although I don't recall seeing two characters in bed, I, I think they're at least allowed to call each other love or, or mm. be a bit more touchy-feely mm. with each other. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And I guess they're not also, which I think is kind of, from what little I understand, I don't think I've seen, I've seen the movie, but um, they're not uh, stereotype. They're not particularly camp. No, one's, one's more camp than the other, but uh, he, he wasn't sort of raving. Mm, uh, yeah. They were... And Joe Hashem, who played uh, Don Finlayson, he was, uh, you know, a law student who became a lawyer. Um, he was, I hate the term straight acting, but he, mm. he you know, for, he was a straight acting mm. gay person. But uh, he was one of the most loved actors and characters in, mm. in that show, and he was there from start to finish. And he made, he made an album, and he made a TV, a TV show. TV special. Yeah, yeah. He, where he was, so was that kind of a variety show or something? It was, he released an album... Uh, probably around seventy five, mm. uh, I think, and to tie in with the the record, the network produced a special of him singing, and mm. he would have had guests on. I, I'm sure I watched it at the time. I, I don't mm. recall too much mm. about it now. Um, yeah, he was popular, but you know they all were. Dorian Herb Evans, played by Pat McDonald and Ron Shand, were supposedly in their 60s, Ron Shand was, Pat McDonald was a little bit younger, but two pensioners were stars of the show. Yeah. It's, you just don't see it <laughs> It's anymore. true, it's true. So one of the things that we're interested in in our show is um, we're interested in the publishing world, and you've produced a book which I think um, is it, it straddles um, not maybe not even a couple of fine lines. It actually um, I think it it's successful in a number of ways. I mean, it is it's an intelligent overview of the show, and it, the show is a phenomenon. You use a lot of 
uh, you reproduce a lot of the press coverage that it gets at the time. So you're talking, you're kind of, I think if, and as I say, I was not allowed to watch number 96, so I, I'm not, you know, I'm very interested in it, but I, it's not from my own, you know, sentimental or nostalgic recollection. Um, but there will be a lot of people, I'm sure, who are still, who would be keen to read this kind of a book. Um, but it's also, you know, I think it, it satisfies people like me who uh, are just kind of interested in that time and also interested in the the cultural milieu, you know. So, you, you know, I wonder, how did you how did you set out to write this? I mean, was was that your... Did, did you have a brief from the publisher? Was there... No, what, what kind of discussion no. was it? Uh, well, I'd already written the book when I went to the publisher. Well, okay. So I actually... Originally, I wanted to make a documentary. I wanted the actors and uh, some of the behind-the-scenes people to talk about making the show and the impact that it had on society mm. and to highlight what they were talking about with various bits of footage that still does exist, uh, some rare footage that I, I discovered that hasn't been uh, seen before. Anyway, the doco never happened, so when I decided I would turn it into a book, I thought, I still want the talking head, so it's very much oral history mm. uh, style of uh, storytelling, but for people who weren't familiar with the uh, show, it had to be interesting for them, for people like yourself who have heard of this shocking show, uh, but you know they had had never really seen it. Um, so uh, someone described it as a, a fine balance between sort of uh, fanzine and uh, scholarly uh, uh, a scholarly book, uh, and it was just a matter of. Whatever the people I interviewed were talking about, I, in a lot of cases, I really wanted to be able to illustrate what they were uh, saying. So if they're talking about a, a particular actor or, or character, you need to see who that person is, especially because there's 65 voices throughout this book. I, I didn't want to overwhelm people with, with all the different voices. So it was just a, I, have, I was very clear about what would be discussed, providing uh, the interviewees had something to say about it, uh, but also uh, illustrating what they were saying with the press clippings or, or, the, or the pictures. Um, yeah, does that... Yeah, yeah, no, totally. So it, so it kind of... Um uh, I mean, it's an. It, you could almost imagine that somebody from another country, you know, would just like pick this up and go, "Okay, Australia in the seventies. Now, I I understand a little bit better about what how what things were going on, what it was, what it was like." And mm. I have actually had a couple of people from the UK who never seen. Well, they may have seen it on DVD, the film, uh, and or, some of the episodes were oh, available. Yeah. But there was one guy who wrote and said, "Now I can't wait to go and, and watch some episodes, having read the book, mm -hmm. um, a guy in England. And it, you know, so for people like them, I love getting that feedback where 
for they get into the book and and they're not reading the book because they were a fan watching yeah there's a huge nostalgia element to this book but um, I wanted it to be beyond that and it looks like it's working <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so you've um, what kind of things uh, are um, when you do publicity and stuff do do they just they just jump in with the the Abigail stuff or is it how do, how do people approach it and what what do you find are people's main memories of of the show everybody asks about Abigail so when I first uh, mentioned to the publisher that you know I'd written this book on number six. Oh yeah I remember Abigail and, and you know can we get Abigail to do some publicity and, and it sort of drove me nuts a bit because yeah. she was only in the show for 18 months mm. um, anyway uh, so yes there's Abigail but I was in the barber the other week and uh, I know the guy who cuts my hair said to some random bloke that had walked in. Oh, Nigel's just written this book on number 96 and he started talking about Dory Evans and, and I said, how old are you? And he said, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm 60. I said, you would have been a teenager when this was on. He said, yeah, that's right. And then someone else pipes up. Oh, I remember uh, Don Finlayson. And, so, and I love hearing all the, the different random sort of recollections. It's, so it's mostly characters and then they start talking about the storylines. Mm. I remember this uh, and I remember that. A lot of them remember things that uh, didn't happen at all. So I remember seeing Abigail running around naked. Well, no you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you wished you had. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, that's... Um I can well imagine that. And there's also, like, people get... Uh, Abigail was in um, just one little scene in the Elven Purple film as well, which I'm sure a lot of people get those things. Yeah, sort of, It's all kind of much of a muchness. That's it's right, all yeah. the, the, It's all the times. That's right, good point. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, it's, I, and I take your, your, you know, your point about it being a, a middle-aged or older cast is, um, that is... That's really interesting, and I really don't know what that says about... What does that say about Australia at that time or, or viewers or what viewers wanted to see? Or it, I just think people were more imaginative when they were creating characters. And they, I've heard stories of three generations of a of, of family sitting down to watch number 96. But I think what happened in subsequent years is something like the network executives or the writers just assumed that everybody was a teenager who was watching mm. the show or, you know, people over 40 didn't watch television soapies or... I don't know. It's, mm. it's, or that they couldn't make a star out of a, a middle-aged person. Well, you know, I'm, Prisoner came after number 96 and that had a diverse cast. Very, very. And that was a huge hit. Now, people writing these soapies should take note of what has worked and build on that. Mm. You know, not just diverse range, age range, but uh, shapes and sizes and colours and, and all that stuff.
Are there other key elements? I guess you kind of mentioned where you where you see it going a bit astray uh, and maybe a little more formulaic than it once was. But are there are there key aspects to Australian soap that, um, well, apart from anything else, account for its success? I think people really like seeing something different. So if they're just if networks are just churning out the same stuff that we've seen before, the same storylines with the same good-looking cast, it just becomes a bit nothing. Um, I think people need to take risks and and do twists on, on things that we've all seen before. Uh, and just, you know, if you're a writer, then use your imagination. It can't be that difficult. Well, I don't think it, 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 it is. And, and just reflect back to audiences a, a bigger range of, you know, where are the Indian characters on television and, and all that sort of stuff. Well, that was the neighbours' question. And yeah. they, they introduced some and then they um, disappeared them. Yeah, maybe that uh, quite soon afterwards. Um, one of the, the best times, I think, in a soap opera, I think whether it's in the popular memory, I'm not sure, but um, maybe not because it's the time when people have stopped watching and things start to go sort of a bit pear-shaped. So famously, Chances was the, was the show that like really went insane at yes. the at the end of its tenure yeah. but East Street as well I think really yeah. went bizarre uh, at the end when uh, I guess it's a it's a combination of the 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 producers going up you know who gives a fuck and uh, and uh, and also like if we throw enough craziness into this maybe people start watching again you know introducing like really severe evil people or uh, weird storylines very weird storylines mm. yeah um, I always remember. I never saw this, but oddly enough, like these things, probably like your number ninety six informants. I remember seeing it, but I know that I didn't. But I remember seeing. I remember what it looked like, but I know I didn't see it because I know that somebody told me and explained to me that uh, I think it was in like the last weeks of East Street. Someone has a fatal car accident by driving off the road because they're trying to avoid a lame duck that's crossing the road. So, you know, and they're like, a lame duck, you know, I get it. Wow. And um, uh, now I remember that happening. But, but I, you know, yeah. but still, there's, there's those kinds of things that I think are, are really fascinating. I mean, in number 96, notoriously, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a, a murderer, uh, and that was kind of to bring the show back, right? And then there was an explosion as well, and like, who's going to die? And you, you described that really well. The explosion stuff is really interesting, that the, um, the, the way that that... Um, and you can see that on YouTube as well. That that scene where um, where the the screen splits into four, I think. That's right. And it's really it's really nicely done. It's actually you can imagine the the tension that people must have felt um, uh, looking at that. Mm. And um, yeah, that's very true. I like the uh, the soap opera. You know, the, the the capacity of soap opera to restart. And once again, it's it's partly. Um, because you wouldn't say that the star is you wouldn't say that the block of flats is the star of the show, but it's it's such a resilient framework that you know if if a whole you know you can wipe out half the cast mm. and the building still stands and it's still number ninety six. Yeah. Did yeah. did we ever get any sense of why it's called number ninety six? Was that it? Uh, David Sale once again, the uh, guy who created it, 
said it was just getting late and he just decided he'd, he'd give it a number, a street number, and then come up with a, a proper title later. They, Waratah Street was a potential uh, title. They didn't want to use that because of Coronation Street, which was screening uh, at the time. So he just thought, oh, number 9, number 19, number 90, number 96, let's call it number 96. And I've had people come up to me since the book has been out saying they really wanted to call it number 69 and they weren't allowed to and no that's yeah. not true <laughs> David just called it number 96 without even thinking of any yeah. sexual connotation yeah. well it stuff. looks it, but it looks good I mean you know it's a it's a it's a design wise and I think you say this in the book as well um, people appropriated that logo for any business yeah yeah I, I remember seeing like a group in Hawthorne I remember seeing there was a there was a business with a big number 96 on the door I you know all I can all I know is it must have been number 96 of whatever that street was but I can't remember anything more about it but yeah it was I'm sure happened all over the country indeed yeah <laughs> isn't yeah. that bizarre it's amazing yeah um I think we should uh we should call it a day on this thank you very much for talking to me it's, Pleasure. Uh, it was it was really great it's a, it's a fabulous book I think you've done it you've done a great job here it looks excellent and it's just, it's a wealth of information. And as I said before, and uh, you know, I think anybody who is interested in either television, uh, kind of mass, mass culture, um, a mass culture that both reflects and, and changes society, it's, uh, and, and the 70s, the early 70s, which is a, or early to mid 70s, is a really uh, fascinating time of like, you know, real uh, social and cultural. Um, upheaval. upheaval, exactly. Thank you. Uh, I would find you know a lot to love about this book. So thanks a lot. David's apartment for now. Yeah. Um, you'll be like in, we're watching the old episodes of number 96 before and they showed when they did the reunion at the end, it's like tenants in number yeah. five yeah. in order yeah. of appearance. It'll be tenants in number one. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a guy called Brian Black who uh, lived live here, here before me. He gets, still gets a lot of mail. Yeah. yeah. We live somewhere where we got someone else's, the old tenants mail and it was the same name. I won't say her name, but it was the same name as an actress. And we just assumed it was someone with the same name as an actress. But then someone saw... I wonder the... what they thought about you when, when you moved out. Anyway, yeah, go yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we didn't think anything of it. But then someone said, oh, she went to my... You know, like, she went to school near me. So we thought, actually, maybe she did live here. And we were looking for through her, like, promo photos and stuff. And then there were photos of her in our, the kitchen. No way. <laughs> so, well, come on, say who it was. I can't remember her name now. Oh, She's geez. not that famous. She was in a movie called Sleeping Beauty, Lemony Snickets. Oh, no, yeah. And, um, Emma Bunting in, or something. Emma, something she was like famous. Yeah, she? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she lived at our house. Oh, my God. She was a tenant before we were tenants in Rathdown Street. Anyway, we're in David's... Was it Emma Browning? Browning, that's yeah, it, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. 
we're in David's apartment for now, which will no doubt later be occupied by someone else. And we're surrounded by someone DVDs. Someone else doing their own podcast. Yeah. Anyway, go on. DVDs. Our concept here was to buy DVDs at op shops yeah. that had a sort of urban focus, and then yeah. we'd do a bit of a review of them. So we've selected, or you've selected, David. New York Minute. Where did you find this? At the Brotherhood Bazaar in um, Brunswick Road, Brunswick. I was specifically there to uh, to find DVDs with uh, an urban focus, as you say. So I I grabbed uh, I grabbed a few, some of which were probably more relevant than others. But I just thought that um, this would be a good way if we if we continue to do this kind of uh, review thing of. Um, in inverted commas, crappy old mm. uh, DVDs that we review, looking at the the kind of the way that they talk about the city and 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 ideas of the city and 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 the way they conceptualise city life, etc. Then um, this would be a great way to start with uh, the Olsen twins in uh, and Eugene Levy in uh, New York Minute. And I'll read a bit of a blurb. Well, the on the front cover it says, "On every teenage girl's see list." <laughs> Okay. Okay. But um, Mary-Kate Olsen and Ashley Olsen take their sister act to the next level with action comedy New York Minute. Top student Jane goes to Manhattan for a college scholarship competition. Her ability city, blah, 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 city, romp, uh, truant officer, smuggler, cute boys, and girls' realisation sisters can be best friends. But it's called New York Minute presumably because, I mean, where's that phrase come from? It just means things are really fast there, right? Things are really fast, yeah, mm-hmm. so he's hoping. He's the romp. New York and Minute. You you reading out that blurb was more than I took. All I took in was the title. I didn't, uh, uh, and the stars from mm-hmm. the front cover. I didn't, uh, I took care not to pay any more attention. So I'm uh, I'm good. completely pure when it comes to this movie. And it's just got a city name. Of course, New York overrepresented in films. Partly, I might add, I didn't fact check this, but this is my understanding of it, and you can correct me, mm. that one of the reasons New York does fit figure so heavily in films is not just because it's a big place, but they had a very generous policy of encouraging people to make films there that had a sort of really expedited process for getting permission and, and part of promotion right? and stuff. Okay. So. I thought uh, my, and I haven't fact-checked nothing, but you I... You could Google while we're watching later. I have <laughs> understanding. Well, I'll be on Facebook most of the time. Yeah. But um, I had an idea that um, Canadian cities usually stood in for New York. Maybe <laughs> that was right uh, irritating for New York, who decided that no one deserved to... Uh, represent New York better than New York itself. And they might have done a sort of, you know, what's that term for food that has to come from, actually come from that oh, place? Oh, like, I don't know, you mean like champagne and, yeah, and yeah, and cheese and stuff? And stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes, could be a bit like that. But we'll find out. We'll, we'll try and guess whether it's really filmed in New York or it's filmed in Montreal or something. Okay, right. sounds good. Here we go. You know they say it's a city that never sleeps? Oh, I think it will now that you've hit town, Gomer. Warner Brothers Pictures presents Twins. We haven't spent the day together in years. So we just finished watching New York Minute. I'd say that the mood in the room is is um, mellow, troubled, troubled. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well, my thought we don't we don't want to dwell on, but we we're trying not to say that we understand why this film has an eleven percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Is but that it, fair it, to say? Yeah, but it, the Olsen twins had made like 20 films by this stage apparently. So, mm. you know, they, they're probably really tired and, you know, they probably used up their best ideas in the first five to ten films. So, uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I mean, they have they have decent chemistry. Why not? And I'm sure that you, Elizabeth, being a twin yourself, you would have had, you, you would have uh, felt a lot of empathy and understanding of, of how they, uh, they operated in that movie. Both... 
both the actors and also the characters. I wasn't sure whether I was empathising with it or I was just channeling it through having read the Sweet Valley High books, okay. which uh, I think there was a TV show of that as well, but it seemed to me like their characters in this film were basically mm-hmm. a reworking of those books through which I understood my own life. In the Sweet Valley High books, there was Jessica and Elizabeth. Elizabeth was straight-laced and always organised, and Jessica was really into... Like in the film. Right. <clears throat> the two twins are very different. Yeah, um, yeah. Which one were you? I don't... Yeah, yeah. I think I played Elizabeth because of my name. Yeah, I think right. I was, yeah. So you were totally typecast by Sweet Valley yes. High Books to being who you actually became Of course, became Sarah didn't life. have Jessica's name, so it didn't quite work. But it's certainly how I understood being a twin with yeah. that book. And possibly the audience... But did you you didn't understand whether as the twin stuff? I was really shocked that they never, or only once, right at the end. Sorry, spoiler. Did they actually mm-hmm. play on the similarity in appearance between those two young yeah, women? Might have been done before. Although there was one tiny part on it when they got kicked off the train, where he oh. said, "No, you didn't have a ticket," and she said, oh. "No, no, that was my sister." Okay, right. But it was a very small point. Mm-hmm. So in any case, we're not, as you said, we're not really here to uh, bag the movie. We're more interested in the, the the way that, I guess in this case, New York or cities generally are represented. And I I think it was a really nicely done, um, the nicely done segue from the suburban life that they live, very leafy as we, mm. we, we saw, and the kind of, all the, the fairly mundane problems that they faced there, uh, the you know, growing them in that, single parent household and so on and then because one of them uh the, the straight-laced one uh jane has to go into new york yep. to give a speech that will seal her future uh and allow her ultimately to get i guess a, a scholarship or yeah it was a four-year scholarship to oxford to oxford in in the uk um that um and her whole life had built up to this and her uh her twin sister tags along because um renowned pseudo punk rock band simple plan were filming a video in new york that day as well and she not only wanted to go to the uh video clip shoot but she wanted to slip them a copy of her band's cd and see if they could get on a tour or something like that so that both sisters had to be in new york so i thought from the outset i was looking out for well first of all where were they because it opens up with a shot of new york city and then it pans out to the suburbs yeah we figured out where they were because um, they're chased by a truant officer who is the Nassau County yeah. truant officer. Nassau County is a county in Long Island, in New York, a suburban county. And they also, when they're starting their journey into New York, they have to drive to the train station and then get a train. But of course, then things go pear shaped because they drive to the train station, Jamaica Station, which is mm. some kind of suburban train line. They get on, and, and one of them doesn't have a ticket, and she gets chucked off, and the other one does, but she gets chucked off anyway because she looks like her. And then they go to the train station and she's like, oh, it says here there's another train in 40 minutes. And he's mm. like, no, we're doing track works just like... I'm, I really empathise with that moment because that's doing track works up in country Victoria at the moment. And he's like, no, no, that's... Um, you know, There'll be no more trains, there's track works. So they have to think of some other way to get... But to there's no work. replacement bus. Bus is not a replacement. Oh, in, in the film, yeah, there's mm. no bus replacement. They're just like, there's no train. He mm. said, there's, there's one train, it's called the Magical Leprechaun Train that yeah. goes to New York whenever you I think you he was it. telling a joke. Yeah, that's about what I mean. that, although I yeah, yeah. half expected that could have happened, but no. Yeah, so I guess the there's there's actually you know there's not too much contra. I mean, they're not they're not like, you know, New York Minute is not a, a a movie where there's a huge thing made out of the contrast between even the suburbs and and the city. It's not, and it's certainly not the country and the city. 
there, there's no expectation, in fact. I mean, there's, not, there's no kind of, um, oh, my God, I never realised New York was this big and busy and bizarre. There's, no, there's a place you go on a train. Presumably they're, they're a little bit au fait with New York, although there's no mention of that, really. But they have a, mm. they have a kind of... Um, they recognise that it's busy and there are a few montages and stuff where they look around and, and things that they see make them think about things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the kind of the critical mass of New York has a has an impact on them, presumably wouldn't have the same kind of impact on them in uh, Nassau. No. But, but they're, they're relatively urbane young ladies, I would say. Yeah, and they're often, uh, they lose all their money and stuff, so they're yeah, a little true. bit suffering from, you know, being alone in the city. It had more than a touch, I think, consciously and otherwise, uh, of a resemblance to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Good point. And their journey into... Um, Chicago in that case and mm. it's and in Ferris Bueller's Day Off like in this film it's not like New York or the city Chicago is an unimaginable place I've never been it's just somewhere over there that they don't often go and dad goes to work or mm. something like that and they they don't really do any sightseeing so they end up in a sewer I, sh- I shouted and shocked several times once, yeah, you did. once you had to go to the bathroom in a service station and she fell into the toilet it's, another yeah. scene they fell into the sewer so the theme going. Another one. The they, dog was on the toilet when they first encountered the dog. It was on the toilet. Dog was on the toilet, <laughs> yeah. and then they ended up on a balcony, like outside the Plaza Hotel. Yeah. In the bathrobe, and yeah. then they fell into a bin. There was a bit of running through the streets of New York in a towel on a bathrobe, which um, not, you know, I mean that it's one of those funny things. Like I felt like the toilet humour, such as it was, or the toilet references, were standing in for something that approximated in some people's minds an adultness. For the, mm. for the film so that's that's got nothing really to do with what we're interested in the film but I, the the bathrobe stuff was certainly wasn't there was no there's no sexiness in that really it was the sort of the awkwardness of of being seen there was another bathroom reference i realized this is you know we're dwelling on this but i didn't write it down in my notes so the organized character jane and i was impressed as as we all were that you remembered their names Jane keeps a diary, a planner of all her activities, including the speeches he has to give. And when the nefarious... So they caught up in this whole thing about a stolen chip. It was very 2004, we found. Yeah. Anyway, the criminal gets her planner, and he's like, oh, this girl is so organised, it's it's loopy or something like that. I bet she even plans going to the bathroom. He's like, yep, here it is, 3.30, no. trip to the bathroom. Okay. Same so no. as... <laughs> wow. Jane Ryan, my name is... A dead ringer. I am this close to winning the four-year scholarship to Oxford University. Stay away from me. Because they ended up in the sewer, and then they had to get out of the sewer, and they got out of 125th Street, which is, they didn't seem to know this, Harlem. And that's why they got out, and they're like, where are we? And they ended up in, what was it called, Big Sherl's House of Bling. Yes. So when um, when they needed... Like, they didn't have any money, but when they needed things, they often seemed to be able to rely on the generosity of non-Anglo people. That's right. Uh, so, for instance... Well, it's on the house. Yeah, it's on the house. The bling was on the house. Also, the taxi, they were able to take a the taxi. The service station, thank you, don't call again, he yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, but he was just like... Huh. He wasn't going to, you know... White privilege was, like, uh, uh, totally overpowering in, mm. the, in all of these cases, I would say. I found it odd because in the in the scene in Big Shell's house of bling, so they've crawled, bedraggled out of the sewer, and they end up in this hairdressing um, slash, I guess, fashion place run by African Americans, and the proprietress tries on multiple outfits for them and does mm. their hair and everything, 
And of course, I'm thinking, how are they going to pay for this? Because they've yeah. lost all their money. And yeah. they just sum that up with one little line. And she goes, oh, don't worry. It's, it's on the house. Mm. And mm. yes, I would agree with that. It was an odd scene. Um, and then they took her cab and there was a big chase. At that stage, I was really wishing that it was over. <laughs> I, th- I said to you, don't worry, all that happens now, she has to give her a speech. Yeah. But then there was a whole other car chase. Yeah, there was uh, a lot, lot of stuff, yeah. My bad. We are so not in Kansas anymore. This is where Bling lives. Cease and Who's that cracker? Well, the sewer, as you say, the sewer stuff, I thought that was very interesting. The 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 street the car stuff that was also I mean there's there's a lot of you know they're they're quite classic uh, tropes I suppose the 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 car chase in the very crowded street mm-hmm. they're like oh I don't really have my driver's license and despite what I've told you kind mm-hmm. of thing which is uh, is common the uh, Eugene Levy's character who is um, very one dimensional I have to say mm-hmm. um, sort of commandeers a uh, a camper van to follow to follow them uh, with some hick tourists, and so he has to he has to drive along. You know, also be uh, he also has to be doing this um, this car chase stuff, which is uh, don't really know what that tells us except that the the camper van is is too big for uh, for a laneway. That's, and they're clearly uh, tourists because when they they stumble on this beach and they're and they're like very excited to be included in the car sh- chase they say new york has the best car chases this is oh, really yeah. add to our trip they're yeah. tourists they have the camera around their neck and they're yeah. wearing like i can't how do you exactly characterize clothes of a tourist in a film like shorts mm. colorful shorts mm. and stuff and then they stereotypical stumbled. midwest hicks i think yes. is what they they were yeah. and then they think the speech is is cats. cats yeah <laughs> did i did i miss why they thought that i didn't even know how they got in there i guess they were following the guy that commandeered their car yeah but they came. But they in, were surprised to see. They when said, they got "Oh, there. I'm sure this is cats because the dog was on the stage." <laughs> I thought it was like <laughs> some animal. It's just like cats. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. it didn't I actually would go so far to say is it didn't actually make any sense that part. Um, but none of us were quibbling. No. There were certain moments. Just the entire plot line with Eugene Levy, the Nassau County truant yeah. officer, chasing someone. All and at the start, remember they showed the news articles. You know, trumped again. He failed to arrest. That was actually probably one of the funniest things <laughs> in the whole film. But I'm sure his, I laughed at something. Else. It was funny that that his like his mission to capture this truant uh, of uh, the Roxy character is like so important that there are clipping newspaper <laughs> clippings on the wall near the wall of his, um, you know, his study or whatever it is. That is actually one of the funniest. That is the funniest thing. That was I, the funniest thing. Right. I laugh. I was actually laughing during the most serious scene because I can't remember why. Oh, because at the start they're like, um, you know, we miss you, mom. Mom died some time ago, and the mm. sisters haven't been friends since then. At some point, we, I believe you interjected and said that um, this will only finish, you know, when they say something about since mom, mom died. Mm. And then there's a big tearful scene in front. Well, there were several. One scene was in front of the Flatiron Building, and mm. another one in front of Times Square, like scene making shots. And she said something, something, something since mom died. And then I started laughing. But yeah. that was unintentionally humorous, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like a lot of... This is a... What was the rating in this film? G or something? I would say so. PG. Actually, when I quickly Googled it before, first of all, we found, I found it had an 11% rating. It's on PG. Tonight. It PG. contains mild violence. Oh, uh, yeah. Hmm. It said, for those parents thinking that PG will make a good, fun family day out, they'll be disappointed. Right. They questioned the rating... There is this fine line with all these, like Sweet Valley High and any kind of teen movies. Mm. This could have gone down some really dark 
route, but it's a PG movie, so... You know, like the scene where they get in the cab and then he locks all the doors and says... Yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. This could... And even she gets shoved in a box at one stage, but you know yeah. she's going to get out. Do you think so, there's, there's room for a remake of this film in a much with a much darker kind of tone to it? Like kids, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Isn't that a film about suburban people? Oh, no, they're yeah. people I don't think they go to New York to make a speech, though. No. but they. I don't think a dog eats a computer chip. Speaking of which, did that... the dog ever shit the chip out? No, that was an unresolved plot element. But That's those people the got, sequel. got arrested, and that whole thing, like this, a huge part of the plot with the criminals that are chasing the stuff, was about pirated movies and DVDs, yeah, which is that's... really, really um, two thousand. We had to check it was two thousand and four. Mm. This whole um, thing that that placed it very much at that time, and and her band, she has a burnt on CD. Yeah, she refers to it as demo, a demo tape, though. Yeah, that was funny. That was and, interesting. and then she managed to commandeer the managers of, uh, what was the band called again? Simple Plan. Simple Plan. At the film clip shoot, and she just shoved the CDs. Her manager, actually, is also Jack Osborne, or something like that. All right. Um, the managers just take it, and they go, ooh, nice packaging. We'll take a look. And then at the end of the film, they're like, the two sisters are flyaway success. One of them got the scholarship regardless, and the other one... Spoiler. <sighs> Well, think of this way, we saved the effort of watching, watching it. Mm. The name's Lomax. Nassau County Department of Truancy. Full party's over, flubber, grab a towel. I'm on the heels of New York's number one truant. Thank you, New York City! Roxanne Ryan. Do you think you could have done this film, though, notwithstanding the title, uh, New York Winter, which is very specific, but... In any other city, is there a, a film like this where people end up in London for the day, things go haywire, Melbourne for the day, sucked in and sped? I'm obviously like I made my analogy to Ferris Bueller, which was mm. Chicago. Mm. Yeah, good point. I mean, I think that um, if you're going to do a film like this, uh, you 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 want to really emphasise that the the frenetic nature of uh, and they certainly a place like New York, um, notoriously not only is it uh, a lot of different um, ethnic neighbourhoods, which we visit mm. uh, at least a couple of, uh, but it's also, and, you know, rich and poor, so that kind of stuff, um, they are all they are all very close together. So, you know, other cities, you'd have a lot of, um, you know, driving on the freeway between different sections, but that's, uh, mm. in this instance, everything is, is um, slap bang side by side, and that's very uh, useful. There's also a lot of, um, you know, so we have a, we have a scene where... Um, you know, people are, are high up. You know, on the on the ledge of a high skyscraper, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, I guess that there's there's a lot of opportunity for um, hijinks all around. You know, uh, the mm. the playground of the city. And New York, you know, obviously is not the only city like that, but it's um, it's the famous one like that. I think. So, in on that score, if you're going to make a, if you have all the options, then make it make your film in New York. I think is. Uh, as the, as the famous one. Otherwise, you have to explain too much. You know? Yeah, where is this? And, and yeah. I'm, I mean, maybe I'm just thinking, well, putting myself in it. I, whenever I watch films, you know, this American films particularly where they just set somewhere yeah. and they're trying to disguise that, but I'm always trying to, like, did they say a specific name? Is this a particular place? Mm-hmm. They do try to do that, but me, personally, I'm always trying to figure out where it is. And with New York, you don't have to bother. But I assume there's people that watch films and never think about it at all. I mean, there's some. I watched a film quite a few actually recently, by which I mean like two at least, that are actually set in Milwaukee. Okay. That was a big part of the plot element of uh, Bridesmaids, for example, is that 
some of the characters are still living in Milwaukee and others have moved to Chicago, which is only a few hours drive away. And yeah, there's this kind of element. But I know from, because I watched it with a few other people, that other people just didn't think that was very interesting or fair enough. I don't know what Milwaukee means. That's my that's my problem. Yeah. I know what it means from reading some National Geographic articles from 1970, late 70s, about Milwaukee. Cats uh, come in. I'm just going to let Nancy. Okay. Hi, Nancy. Nancy, you missed quite a movie. There was a big scene for an animal in the movie. Yeah, yeah for an ugly, animal, ugly but you know, Nancy's, you know, she thinks we're all animals. Yeah. And yeah. Um, she'd just see a dog as one or more animal. True, true. No uh, cats. There were no cats in this mm. film. Mm. Have you ever seen that movie, That Darn Cat? No. I haven't either. I know it was... Uh, had some kind of FBI plot line in it, and I might well have been set in New York. Thinking out loud, I think it was a similar film to this. It was a tween hijinks film involving a cat that stole something. Could well have been a reference to this. Quickly on Milwaukee, though, we should wrap up. We, yeah. Maybe we should try and find a film set in New- Milwaukee at some Good point. Good idea, but you, you know some, apparently. Yes, Bridesmaids at least one, but the yeah. other one now is with mine. Um, I had that old National Geographic talking about Milwaukee, and it's it's on the lake but like further up from Chicago right, yeah. and it's old old beer area lots of Germans and mm. things like that and it's a Rust Belt city got really bad weather but it's having a resurgence now through sort of craft beer and stuff like that yeah that's my brutal summary okay. so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we're off they wouldn't have made Milwaukee Minute no it would have been um, not, not as compelling a title or a film because mm. as you say it would have taken a lot more of the scenes, as in Bridesmaids, would have had to have taken place, driving from place to place. My feeling then, ultimately, to wrap up about um, New York Minute in terms of the kinds of things that we're interested in. I mean, I think it is a, it's a very, it's very brash and uh, very colourful film with a lot of, a lot of scenes that quite obviously, you know, cliche, basically New York. The the contrast between suburbs and and city could have been made more of, but the, the kind of um, the sense in which it was a day of, of hijinks in you know with with this the amazing metropolis as a backdrop i was uh, sort of um, impressed by the the kind of template that we were dealing with here i think it's a it's a very um, established sort of uh, sort of trope and the the kind of the crazy frenetic nature of it uh, worked for me i was engaged all the way through so even though i will agree with uh, Rotten Tomatoes. It's quite a shitty movie. I um, I think that uh, it's it's a, it's an interesting contribution to the um, to New York films. And my summary of it is that I enjoyed uh, how many references to city services there were, suburban yes. train lines, subways, yes. rubbish collection, yes. and sewers, all featured. Just quick uh, on I no I won't say more than five seconds on it, but the plot line of that darn cat is about two sisters um, that oh. end up. I can't tell if it's New York, but you know. Very similar film. I, I can't Who plays it. the sisters? Um, it's from 1960s, and it's Hayley Mills. Oh. Yeah. Okay. okay. So that is <clears throat> New York Mini- Minute. You've been listening to... One last thing. Mm-hmm. I think we just... I just want to capture for the for the audio. When the Chinese woman advances towards the dog with chopsticks in her hand, <laughs> is something being referenced that's <coughs> more than I'm going to pull a chip out of a small dog's anus with chopsticks i interpreted as i couldn't you could go two ways one was that it was a hardy hard joke that chinese people are going to eat this dog Mm. isn't that hilarious Mm. or it was sort of playing on the fact 
that you thought that's what it was a joke about. So it's me. It's all on me. But then I that only makes sense if they then cut to another scene and they were having dinner with the dog, and so they're making fun uh, of you. But they didn't. No. But maybe that was a scene they cut out of the film. Right. Because it is Could a very in... frenetic film. Maybe didn't. Yeah. No. Maybe that's in the bloopers. Oh yeah, we're not going to watch those, are we? <laughs> no, I'm going to throw this DVD away. <laughs> you might today. find it, listeners, in your own op shop yeah. near you. Enjoy. Okay. Goodbye. Bye.